Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Hi, and welcome to an episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. Today, we're going to talk about physician wellness with Dr. Greg Skipper. Dr. Skipper has had an illustrious career, not to say that he's old or anything, but he has been instrumental in developing some of the standards that physicians use for physician substance use recovery programming, as well as an innovator in the ETG development of accountability tools, which measures biomarkers in the blood. So welcome, Dr. Skipper. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Did I mess up your introduction at all? Tell me. Not too bad. Not too bad. Only thing is I am old. (laughs) (laughs) well i don't like to use illustrious career with somebody who is not so we will uh sure we'll talk about that so i want to talk about mental wellness mental illness substance use disorders among the physician population because you have done this large study and you you are in the know so to speak of what what is the propensity for medical professionals to have substance use disorders? What are you seeing? <laughs> okay. So, um, you know, that question's been uh, kicked around for a long time. And I think the balance um, of opinion now, based on pretty good studies, is that the incidence of and prevalence of um, addiction among physicians is the same as the general population. So every group that's been looked at has pretty much been the same. It's, it's pretty high. It's around 10 to 15% lifetime prevalence. So that means that uh, in any group, whether it's lawyers or truck drivers or doctors, um, in general, uh, that's about the rate of addiction, 10 to 15%. Mm-hmm. Well, um, and that is significant. That's a significant percentage is. of our it population, is. Is. right? So, so we, all, we, we all know that addiction's prevalent. It's, it's a scourge and it's, uh, you know, it, it's a thing that's plagued our country. Um, for decades and looks like it's going to continue, unfortunately. So every family almost has to confront this and deal with it. And it, it's, it's, it's not a, it's not a illness or disorder that, you know, that any group is immune from it. Uh, it tends to be quite uh, equal among different professions. Absolutely. Now, yeah, let me ask a question. I want to interrupt you for just one second. So if 10 to 15% of physicians struggle just like the rest of our population with substance use disorders, do they receive treatment 
at the same percentages, do we think? You know, the general population, the rate of people getting treatment is pretty low. Really uh, low. Around yeah. Really low, 5% or so. Um, with physicians, I think it's a much higher rate because they, they're held accountable and they tend to show up. And once they show up, they, um, they, they need to get treatment in order to keep working and they really value their work. So they, they cooperate and they get treatment and they get long-term monitoring and their outcomes are really super good. So uh, the, best you know, in, I, the best in the substance use world, when I model programming, it is based on the physician's model because the incidence of sustained recovery is higher than almost any other population. Is that true? It's true. Yeah. And I think the reason for that largely is monitoring, long-term monitoring. So identifying that there's a problem and then, uh, getting people help and getting people in monitoring. So, you know, for a long time, people looked at the great outcomes uh, among physicians and they said, well, it's just because they're doctors, they have more going mm -hmm. for them or something. But uh, there have been a couple of large studies, uh, one out of Hawaii, it was called HOPE Probation, the HOPE Probation Study, where they looked at felons that were uh, on probation, uh, and they were required. The the requirement was that they they had to maintain absolute, um, you know, abstinence from alcohol and drugs. And um, if they didn't, then they would go back to jail. So this this judge uh, named Judge Alm A L M created this program. Prior to that. People were released, and they they didn't have a defined result. They were told to stay sober, don't drink or use, and they were drug tested. But they didn't know how many times they would test positive before they would be their probation would be revoked. So with this new program, they said we well, have to stay abstinent totally, um, and that's what we do with doctors. We say you have to stay abstinent, abstinent totally abstinent. Any one positive test, and you're going to uh, be pulled off work and have to do other things. So with the prisoners in hope probation, that was a change and it was resisted by the way. And because probation officers thought that the court would be inundated, everybody's going to relapse a lot. Um, but what happened is the relapse rates went down. So if we expect some, if we, hold the standard that people have to stay abstinent and we have monitoring and consequences. Um, they don't even have to be that severe, but if there's consequences, um, it helps outcomes. And so that's what we've done with doctors. We've, you know, they get identified because they're held to a high standard. Nurses smell alcohol in their breath or they um, get picked up because of diverting drugs or whatever. And then they get uh, referred for evaluation, for diagnosis, be sure what the problems are, whether it's more than one problem, depression or bipolar, in, in, in addition to addiction. So they get a thorough evaluation and then they get sent to appropriate treatment. And then the most important thing is they then get long-term monitoring with consequences. So I've encouraged that in all my patients
that model can be used for everybody almost. Um, you know, there are some few people that have lost so much, they don't have anything else to lose. So there's hard to give them consequences except maybe jail. Um, but when in, in a lot of families, uh, for example, if the children, if a child is having trouble with addiction, uh, the family, the parents have a real hard time deciding what limits to set. But um, if working with somebody like you guys, I know this is what you do is you work with people to help them decide how to deal with these things. Um, if, if that's done properly and a contract is developed, uh, the person, you know, can't keep their car or they can't be, uh, you know, their gym membership is dependent on their staying sober or whatever, and they're in good monitoring, the outcomes are much better like they are with doctors. So when you say monitored for a length of time, how long is it now? I know that that as long as possible. monitoring has grown over the years. Well, it's as, it's, to the it's as long as possible. Yeah, the, the it's a lifelong risk of illness. So the balancing point is if, if the monitoring is known to be too long, then people resist being identified you know, in other words, like for the physicians, uh, they figure out if I come forward or if I get identified or, you know, the program is identified as, as requiring five years or seven years or whatever, um, that, that will sway whether they will uh, accept help or not. So we don't want to say lifetime because people go, oh, no, I don't want to be in that program. Uh, but lifetime would actually be best because the illness is lifelong and the frequency and, you know, intensity of monitoring can be reduced. So anyway, the balance point for most is around three to five, even seven years in some programs. But some people end up in lifetime monitoring because they... Mm -hmm they do better in monitoring and they relapse when it stops. And so we just keep it going. Mm-hmm. I mean, that makes yeah. sense. It is a chronic disorder. So we would look at, right. if you're looking right. at monitoring as a helpful tool and not just as a lever that spells right. bad behavior. Right. And you don't have it's, to look at it that way. Yeah. It's setting up contingencies. You know, you can even give positive reinforcement. So, you know, if you stay sober, then you get to keep your gym membership and your BMW or um, you get to practice medicine and be on these committees to help other doctors. Doctors like to do that. Um, so there's some real positives for staying sober and then there's negatives for not staying sober. So if those things are clearly defined and they're held in place, you know, in other words, if there if there's um, adherence to that, then then it really works. In addition to accountability, though, there's got to be some other supportive tools that are coming along with that, right? We're not just monitoring. What kinds of things do you advocate in terms of support elements for physicians? Okay, so I think that needs to be determined individually. So that's okay. where a thorough evaluation comes into play to determine what kind of problems has this person had? Is it related to 
uh, family issues, conflict in the marriage? Is it related to co-occurring psychiatric disorders? Is it, um, you know, other you know, overwork, <laughs> things like that. So it depends on the nature of the problem. So an evaluation should determine that. And then, and then treatment should be focused on that. And then long-term care would also be focused on that. So if, let's say there's been, um, let's say there's bipolar disorder, then you would want the person to have to commit to stay with a psychiatrist and take their meds and work with somebody and accept that they have that and that they need to cooperate and so forth. So, yeah. So whatever else they need needs to be in place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One thing I wanted to talk about today is what are the barriers to getting a program like this going either in a, you know, in a state or a community or a family even, like what, what prevents people from wanting to do this? And I think a, a lot of it is stigma. You know, number one, people don't want to have this illness. You know, they, it's, a, it, it's seen as a real um, bad thing, bad behavior, shaming. Um, mm -hmm. And nobody wants to have any illness, but mental illness and particularly substance use disorders have more stigma. So people resist the diagnosis. But beyond that, there's bigger institutional issues uh, that can prevent a program from being put in place. And, um, you know, what are those, what are those problems, those barriers? I think one is media. Um, you know, media is always looking for scandals. And mm -hmm. with uh, professionals like doctors and judges and lawyers and even, you know, wealthy folks or politicians or whoever, uh, the media is <laughs> looking for, for problems. And so, you know, people may not want to set up a program like this um, because, you know, identifying the problem may lead to media attention and shame and scandal and all that. So media is a, is a negative influence on, on making this happen. Um, another, in, in the case of doctors and maybe in a lot of other professions, another systemic barrier is um, um, these groups that, um, you know, want to support uh, public policy and um, like Ralph Nader type um, groups that uh, make their living off of saying, you know, doctors are dangerous. We need more uh, punishment. We need more rigid systems and that sets up a dynamic that um, makes it more difficult for people to want to come forward. Um, so these consumer advocacy groups, uh, which are really prevalent in California, by the way, uh, in other words, people are making a living off of advertising that this doctor had a drug problem and so forth. And they 
think, well, then the medical board or the, you know, authorities need to get more involved. We need to get the police involved. We need to hunt these doctors down and they make a big deal out of it because they want to generate more revenue for their um, advocacy group. <laughs> and um, what that does is it stifles appropriate management because nobody wants to come forward when there's that kind of an atmosphere. Um, lawyers are also, plaintiff's lawyers are also a barrier. So, you know, we know that people get sued and the plaintiffs in California, the Trial Lawyers Association has supported the consumer advocacy groups to make a fuss about this and pressure the medical board to be more harsh. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, it's, there's a number of things going on and I, that, that's, particularly focused on physicians and other health professionals, but it kind of relates to anybody, you know, if we're going to have a program to manage these things, there's all this kind of relates. Um, and then the final thing is like the regulatory boards, like the medical boards in the country, every state has a medical board and a pharmacy board and a nursing board, all these boards, their task is to make sure that, the public is protected, that the practitioners are safe. And um, because of sunset laws and things like that, they they have to justify their existence. So they, the more cases they can come up with that they've identified and punished in, in a way, uh, they get more funding. So that's a barrier to having a supportive program. So the ideal thing, I think is to have early identification in a supportive atmosphere where people get a proper evaluation and then appropriate treatment and appropriate long-term monitoring. And that's the safest thing. It, it works. It's been proven um, in programs like Hope Probation. And the other one is called 24-7, which is a DUI program that I could describe if you want. But, but it's proven and there's other studies too, contingency management studies um, that have proven that if you set up the right kind of system, addiction is treatable and the success rate is, is good or better than any other chronic illness. If you don't mind, I'd say a little more about contingency management. That's an Love interesting to hear about thing. Yeah, okay. talk to so me about it's, it. It's the same kind of thing that I've been talking about, but it sort of approaches it a little more from a, uh, conditioning point of view or something like uh, from experimental psychology or something. So what okay. they've done is they've had programs where, for example, um, teenagers that have problems with marijuana, they've set it up so that every negative drug test when negative, meaning they don't have, you know, clean drug test, when they have a clean test, uh, they get $5 into a bank account or whatever amount, $10, you know, and uh, that accumulates for every negative drug test. And if they have a positive drug test, it goes back to zero. And periodically they get to take half of the money out or whatever. So the different schemes like that. And if you do that with a group of teens and then the other group, you don't do that, but you do everything else the same with counseling and so forth. The ones with contingency management in place do a lot better. So just a little bit of positive reinforcement, 
mm-hmm. with a little bit of negative if they have trouble. And it's not, you don't shame them. You're just saying, you know, mm-hmm. if you can stay sober, you're going to get some reward for that. Now, those programs have been criticized because people say, well, yeah, why should we reward an addict for being healthy, you know, for not using? Well, the reason is because it works, you know. So, and I think, I think families should think about that. Like what, what are the limits that can be set and how to set up a system, you know, to do uh, supportive intervention, get appropriate care, and then set up a system for long-term monitoring that's got the right stuff in place. And it's not like we're going to excommunicate you from the family if you ever use again. See, because that's too much. You know, people won't even want to do that. You know, and they're not, parents are unwilling to kick their kids out on the street because they could die. And then, you know, how's that going to feel? That's horrible. I so, also am not a huge fan. And let me ask you this of using emotional sure. affection as leverage. You know, it's one thing to say, I'll take away your car. It's another thing entirely to say, and I'll stop talking to you. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't do that either. I think they need to figure out what is it. There's things, you know, like, you know, allowance. You know, there's things like college or privileges, use of a car. Yeah, privileges, having a gym membership. And you might say, well, what difference could a gym membership make? It doesn't have to be a lot. You know, just any, you know, each case has to be studied and figured out. But um, I can cite numerous examples. I've because I've worked in this physician model, and I'm trying to get everybody to use it. By the way, there's resistance to this also from counselors. A lot of alcohol and drug counselors, when I've talked to them about this, they're like, "We don't want to put people in monitoring. We want people to be in recovery. We want to see, uh, you know." a change spiritually that they really turn their life around. Well, everybody would like that, um, but that's not inconsistent with monitoring. So I've tried to convince counselors, alcohol and drug counselors, to accept uh, the idea that monitoring can be useful. And when they do, they see it, it is useful. So we want them to be in recovery. We want them to change their life and change their, you know, their attitude about all this, but having accountability in place uh, is not a barrier to that. So um, an example would be like I had a really like a 24-year-old son of a doctor and, and his mother was a lawyer. And he had been in treatment six times since he was 16. And so when they came into treatment with us, I, the parents came with them to admit him to the treatment program and they were discouraged six times in treatment. This is not working, you know? Uh, so I, I said to them, would you be willing to develop a contract at the end of this treatment? And uh, we worked together and we decided on some of the things I've mentioned. He got to keep his car he got to have gym membership and they paid for him to have a modest uh, apartment uh, in this area, which was good because then he could stay with his aftercare. And um, 
he has done great and you know for years now uh so that really was an example of that really working anything that works because the the media the the culture likes to say substance use disorders are not treatable that uh -huh. they are shameful that they are lost causes i know differently you know differently and it's good to hear it uh, tom mcclellan is a researcher who's written a lot about uh comparing addiction to other chronic illnesses uh like you know things like diabetes or hypertension or asthma or things you know any any chronic illness can recur and sure. and what he's determined is that addiction is as treatable as any of those other things so you know asthma can recur but if you set up the proper if you know if the person's educated and they've got the proper incentives then um they can inter you can intervene early and get people back on track and same thing with addiction that's great to hear Thank you, Dr. Yeah. Skipper. This has been a wonderful conversation. I appreciate you joining us at Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us today at Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. And if you found this episode or any episode interesting, please like us on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.